0: Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. Ben Claussen has been our teaching intern for the last few weeks here at Meadowbrook. He's been working with Chris, our teaching pastor, and he's currently running a Bible study that's happening here 9am on Sunday mornings, and we're very excited to have him here with us. He is going to Bible College in the fall in Nova Scotia, and has done the last few years at Tyndale. So we are very excited and honored to have him speak with us this morning. So join me in welcoming Ben Clawson today.
1: Well, good morning. Uh, as Sarah mentioned, I recently graduated from Tyndale uh, this past, this past spring and I'll be moving into a master's program in September I'll be studying the Old Testament in particular partly because for most of my life I haven't really been that interested in the Old Testament and I think that we should be studying it more as a church I don't know if you guys feel the same way but I've neglected it a lot in my life so it's time to learn a little bit more about it and yeah I I consider myself lucky to have been given the opportunity to take whatever little I have learned through my education so far and to bring it back home, to bring it back to you guys. So that hopefully what I've been growing through and what I've been learning, I can make accessible for you guys so that you can be kind of coming alongside me in that. So yeah, I'm thankful for the pastoral staff for giving me this chance and kind of one thing that I would like to preface our discussion on wrath with is that Something that I think is important is to to place emphasis on the things that the Bible emphasizes and Like we could still talk about the things that aren't emphasized But sometimes we take those little things and we make them into really really big things Like I did a class on Revelation and our professor spent maybe 15 minutes talking about the Millennium When a lot of stuff on Revelation spends a lot of time on the Millennium when in reality It's only about seven verses in the entire book so We'll be looking a little bit at Revelation next week, since I have the opportunity to preach again, so get ready for that. But we'll be talking more about what is going to be emphasized in Revelation, or what I think is more of an emphasis than, say, the Millennium, which a lot of people talk about. Uh, so, on that note, with concerning God's wrath, because, I don't know about you, but even a few years ago, that would have kind of been like a red flag for me. Like, oh, we're going to be preaching on wrath? That seems kind of odd. But it's something that's talked about a lot in the Bible. It's talked about a lot, and people normally associate it with the Old Testament, but throughout the Bible it's used, the word wrath itself, just to give you an idea of where it fits within a few other words that are used throughout the Bible, the word wrath is used 200 times in the King James English, because that's the concordance that I have, so I can study that, compared with mercy and grace, Mercy is used 270 times, so a bit more. Grace is used 170 times, which is less than God's wrath. But from my experience, those two things are given much more time to talk about. And they're very important concepts. I'm not here to say like, oh, we should never be talking about those things. But I think it's helpful to understand those things in light of God's wrath as well especially something that is talked about as often as wrath is. So there should be, we should be speaking about it in a comparable frequency to the other things. So that's the plan for today. We're gonna to be talking about God's wrath and what exactly that looks like, and a few, a few points of application. What exactly can we take from God's wrath and how can we, how can we grow in that? How does that make us appreciate God more? Uh, Yeah. And kind of a foundational thing before we get into talking about wrath is kind of briefly cover the idea of simplicity, which I talked about in the class this morning that, again, I'm lucky enough to be allowed to teach in that God is not made up of parts, but he is fully each one of his attributes. So if we're going to talk about wrath and love, he is fully both of those. It's not within his character to necessarily say that he's 50% love and 50% wrath, we would say that he's 100% both. Which, I don't know about you, but that makes my head explode when I think about it. But, you know, that's part of the joy of studying theology and learning about God. So, and even as a preface, my own interest in talking about God's wrath comes from a discussion that I had with someone, which I think is fairly common, where someone emphasized love and grace so much that he completely denied any sort of wrath within the character of God. Which, I don't know, I was a little bit offended that he would talk about God that way. And he he went so far as to claim that any mention of God's wrath and anger in the Old Testament was because ancient Israel misunderstood God so much That they took attributes of the devil and associated them with god and then i just kind of i couldn't continue the conversation because i'm like "What, what are you doing man but that's that idea although taken to an extreme is indicative of a modern tendency or just a tendency that we have to set the two testaments against each other as we'll claim oh the old testament's all about anger and wrath and the new testament is where grace and love show up When the point that I was making to this gentleman is that you find both sides, you find grace and wrath within both testaments, right? You can't just set one against the other. There are some aspects where the new builds on the old, and Hebrews talks about that. But overall, it's the same God being described throughout. It's the same God that's interacting with his people. So... With that in mind, and because of the tendency that we take to take wrath and simply equate it to the old, in our discussion today, I am only going to be quoting from the New Testament. Just, I thought it was a fun challenge to throw in, see how far we can get. So, unlike some other, unlike next week, which I'll be using less references, today will be mostly just biblical references. I'll be adding a few little comments here and there. But there's going to be a lot of them, so for the sake of helping you guys out, they'll they'll all be on the screen. If you feel like you want to keep up in your own Bible, go for it. It's going to be a lot though. So, with that in mind, let's move into the first one, which the first kind of main point is that God's wrath is judicial. Which, when when we think about wrath and people that object to it, they have an idea of human anger or human wrath in that it's very imperfect, and it's very emotional, but God's wrath is judicial. So, the first reference, Romans 1, 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath is directed towards those who are ungodly and who are unrighteous. That is... That is the point of it. And the unrighteousness of God actively suppresses the truth of God's sovereign reign over the universe. And God's holiness, which is another important aspect to grasp, his holiness will not allow this to, remit, to go unchecked. So moving on, Romans 2, 2, 2 verse 2 and then 5 to 6. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of, on the day of wrath when God's ju- righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. God's wrath is a response to people's evil works because they are essentially, they are rebellious. And effectively, some people use the analogy of spitting in the face of God through their sin by choosing to elevate created things above the Creator. And it's important to note the last phrase, he will render to each according to his works, and that his wrath is completely just. His wrath is poured out because it is what is deserved, and is was demanded by his holiness. There's nothing... There's nothing unfair about it. Yeah. Moving on. Romans thirteen four to 5 for he is God's servant for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now, this is Paul talking about submitting to authorities of the state, in particular at the time, which would be fairly difficult because this is early on in the church and they're experiencing a lot of persecution. But Paul is still making the point they are the authority that is permitted to carry out God's wrath on people before God comes back and initiates his full reign. The state has that God-given authority. So by rebelling against that, you're rebelling against God, firstly. And they're only... the state is only authorized to do that to people who, who deserve God's wrath. People who do wrong, people who harm those in the state and those around them. Again, it is a judicial wrath. So the state government system is God-ordained in that. And it demands obedience as well. And the last kind of reference for this section, 1 Thessalonians 2, 14b to 16 for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the jews who killed both the lord jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased god and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins but god's wrath has come upon them at last in this case wrath is poured out against those who who disrespected and murdered Jesus and the prophets, which, in this historical context, is those living in Judea at the time. But I think it's more important to take note of the phrase following it, in that it's defined as displeasing God and opposing mankind by hindering the gospel. This is a much broader idea of who who would be subject to wrath based on this, Basically, any person, religion, system, whatever, that tries to keep the church from fulfilling its task is subject to wrath, because they're opposing, they're opposing God's will. They're opposing what he desires for creation. So, God's wrath being judicial. Now, based on kind of what's hinted at in that passage, we can move on to who deserves it. Who deserves God's wrath? And the answer is, surprise, everybody. So Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, let, that phrase gets me. Like, by nature, we were children of wrath. And this is the common human situation, right? You can't really look at other people and be like, oh, they're worse off than I was, because before Christ, we were all in the same position. If anything, that should humble us and kind of motivate us to be like, okay, these people are where I was, so through God's love, he desires to bring them out of that place as well, right? Which is one of the points we'll get into near the end. Uh, moving on. Uh, John three eighteen to 19. I know John three sixteen is the more popular one, but we'll read a couple verses later. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. People choose to not respond to the light revealed by Christ. And in that refusal, in that moment, it's, it's a self-condemnation. And connected to this is a, a passage that I, I... It's been in my head a lot, for the past little while it's from 1st Corinthians two fourteen. this one isn't on the screen I don't know why I didn't put this one on there but he talks about the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned that's the position that we're all in before Christ we're all in this natural state unable to even comprehend the spiritual things because they're beyond anything that we can fathom in that so moving on to the next this is a rather large one so enjoy uh, Romans 1 21 to 24 uh, 26 28 and 32 for although they knew God they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So part of God's wrathful response is to give someone over to their sin. I believe one of the, in one of the letters Paul talks about an immoral brother and like giving them over to Satan, giving them up and to allow the sin to basically take, take its full toll. And he basically honors their decision. He's like, yeah, if you want to reject me, fine. Go on and see, see where that takes you. That's part of the wrathful response. And even as kind of a side note, that last line, it's something, it's another thing that's stuck out to me a lot as, as we consider what does it mean to give approval to things that to things that are a sin, to things that God hates. Cuz personally, the biggest one that comes to mind for me is media because we're partaking of things, we're watching things where people are engaging in various sins. Is that is basically what I want you to kind of think about before we move on is is watching these things a form of approval for that, but also for the people who practice it. That's something that, that's a question that a professor posed to a class that we took on Romans and it's kind of been, it's been eating at me, I know. Um, Maybe for some of you that sounds like it's a legalistic way to think about it, but I don't know, that's kind of where I'm at. And without belaboring the point too much, let's move on. Um, So up to this point, it sounds, sounds like a rough go, since everyone deserves God's wrath, but that's where the good news of the cross comes in. That's where grace comes in, right? So for those of us who are saved, the wrath that Christians deserve was laid, on, was laid upon Jesus. It was laid on the cross. It was ta- he took it in order that we could be saved. See Romans 5, 9 to 11. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The blood of Christ saves his people from the wrath of God. That is the main issue that... Is dealt with. Like there are there are other ones as well. There are a number of different atonement models to talk about, but without dealing with wrath, none of them are really effective in any way. That's the main problem. And it is the blood of Christ who saves people from God's wrath. So moving on to First Thessalonians five nine, for God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the work of Jesus saves his people from the wrath of God. And this is a cause for rejoicing. This is one of the the few ways that we actually sing about wrath. Like, one of the only lines that I know of that talks about wrath is in a song that we sung today. On that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Amen. That's... Yeah, it's a huge cause for rejoicing. And then moving on to 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 to 10. For they themselves report concerning us the kind reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. That phrase, the wrath to come, that is what, we're ultimately saved from. Talking about this idea of the day of judgment when everyone will stand before the throne and will be judged by God. That is where the wrath and judgment is laid out ultimately. And that is what the cross saves those of us who are Christians. That's what it saves us from. Right? And that kind of brings us into our next point. The wrath that is not dealt with on the cross is dealt with on the day of judgment. So it's not like it seems as though some people have a free pass right now. They're just storing up wrath for themselves for a later date. Pending repentance. Uh, so starting with Luke twelve five, But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after, who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. And this is a call to understand the authority and the wrath of God over and above what we can see in our society, because people around us seem a lot more immediate, so we're going to fight and hope for their approval, as opposed to properly hoping for the approval of God. And just to throw it in there, one of my professors, he liked to distinguish between types of fear when it comes to stuff like this. He would say, oh, I can't remember the exact numbers, but fear when it talks about fear of the lord is 95% awe because you're just in awe of how great god is but there's still 5% that's actual fear because you know based on a verse like this you know that he has the authority to cast into hell but you know that you're saved by the cross so it's mostly awe but there's still that little bit like oh man kind of i think cs lewis described it as the fear you would have for say a lion like aslan within the chronicles of narnia you you have a lot of respect for him and you have a lot of awe for him but as the characters like to say he's not a tame lion (laughs) moving on Romans 12 19 beloved never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written vengeance is mine I will repay says the Lord which is quoted from Deuteronomy so that's our one Old Testament reference for today when When will this happen? That's a question that a lot of the prophets have. They're like, how long, O Lord, will you allow this to go on? And ultimately, oftentimes they're told to wait. You're like, don't worry. I'm going to take care of it at some point. This is the day of judgment. This is when wrath will be poured out. But for now, you just got to be patient. Um, I think it's the last. Oh, we have a couple more. Uh, the next one is from Revelation six fifteen to 17. And the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of wrath has come, and who can stand? This is one of those passages that reveals kind of what that endpoint is going to look like and you see those outside of the church they recognize what's going on but they're still they're still stubborn in that as they're being judged as they're subject to punishment they still recognize their disobedience and then moving on to revelation 16:19 the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And this description is very telling because Babylon throughout the book of Revelation, one of the things that Babylon would represent is the epitome or the pinnacle of human achievement, of secular society. And that's something that Right now, it seems like there's a lot of control. There's a lot of power. There's a lot of freedom to just do whatever you want. But when you read a passage like this, you understand it's a limited time. There will come a time when they will be forced to drink the cup of God's wrath. I don't know. That scares me a little bit, but I'm covered by the cross, so maybe maybe I should I don't know. All right. That's kind of four descriptors. Looking at God's wrath. From there, we're gonna move on to kind of what are a few what are a few points of application? How do we respond to God's wrath? The first one is actually that God's wrath is praiseworthy. This is kind of brings to mind another another story of a class where a professor was talking about God's judgment and wrath, and I if I'm remembering correctly, he said something along the lines of it is improper or it seems wrong to be praising god for judgment be praising god for wrath and in my head i thought what about revelation then the passage on the screen revelation 19 1-3 after this i heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out hallelujah Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her, Im- her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And upon reading that myself, it seems like they're praising God for his wrath. They're praising God for his judgment because they were persecuted and they were killed by it. And they're saying, God, avenge us. If you care for your people, avenge us. Which is kind of where the next passage goes, which is earlier in Revelation. So Revelation six ten to 11. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were killed as they themselves had been. These are, these are martyrs in Revelation that are crying out to God so that he would avenge their deaths. But if you pay attention to the text, they're not reprimanded. They're not told, oh, you shouldn't pray that way in their desire for vengeance and ultimately their desire for God to reveal his justice because that is what wrath is instead they are told to wait just just wait a little bit longer trust in God's timing so that's kind of one aspect that God is wrath just like all his other attributes is praiseworthy it's just a matter of figuring out what is what is a proper way to do it which honestly I couldn't tell you (laughs) but in particular I think of songs like there are ways to talk about wrath within that and then ultimately wrath and grace should be understood together because God's grace ultimately saves us from wrath and if we have a proper understanding of wrath we have a much Greater understanding and appreciation for the grace that he has shown us in the cross and this leads Kind of that idea of wrath leads to two two reactions So one is thankfulness and joy for the grace we have received because we're not if we're Saved by the cross. We're not subject to wrath anymore We can praise God for that we can thank him for saving us in that and the second one is that we can We can use that as fuel to desire greater outreach and greater evangelism in our communities and greater cause for discipleship. Because we know people who will be subject to God's wrath if they were were to be taken before Christ today, if they were to die today, they would be subject to wrath. So this should motivate us to speak to them. So with that in mind, we have a couple more references. Uh, Romans eleven twenty two. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. God's grace. This is kind of a description of God's wrath, <laughs> grace and wrath that they should be understood together. And one of the biggest parts is that we know kindness Note his kindness with joy and noting that motivates us to greater obedience and to continue in his kindness. And then 2 Corinthians 5.11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Paul's, one of the big passages that Paul might be known for is his ministry of reconciliation. And it's, Partly based on this understanding of God's wrath Again that all these people that we're encountering They will be subject to it as much as that It might break our hearts to think about but It's the truth that is revealed in God's Word does that does that motivate us with love? To reach out to other people that don't know that don't have that relationship with Christ that don't that aren't covered by the cross so these are kind of the two two kind of closing questions that we have working with will you respond in joy in the knowledge of god's wrath because you have been spared from the coming wrath and then will you respond in determination and perseverance for the sake of those who will have to face god's wrath one day because i think both of these are both of these are asked of the church, and both of these are required by all of us to kind of wrestle with, how are we gonna do these things? Uh, I'll pray. Father, thank you for your grace. We thank you that your grace has, has saved us from your wrath, that we can, we can walk freely in relationship with you through the cross and through the blood of Christ. I pray that as we go forward that you would impress upon all of us the things, anything that was said tonight that was from you. And if there's anything that isn't from you, that it would that would fall away and that it wouldn't be wouldn't even be remembered, but that we would focus on what you had to teach us today. Pray that we would respond in joy to to your salvation, to your gift. That we would also respond with a greater understanding of your heart for people, for all people within your creation, that we would respond with a desire to, for them to know you as well. Amen.
0: We're going to spend some time in prayer before we wrap up our service this morning. We are going to have a team of people up at the front uh, who have been trained uh, to pray for you. So I encourage you, if you're needing prayer this morning, to come forward. We'd love to do that for you. And if you are not wanting that, I just ask that you visit out in the lobby and at the cafe just to respect those who are praying in here. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that your mercies are new every morning. I thank you for your faithfulness, God. May we be a people who do not forget what we have been saved from. God, that we would walk in the grace that you give us. Lord, that seeing who we were and who we are now would make us the people who want to honor you in the way we live our lives. God, I ask that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would convict our hearts, Father, and that we would be men and women who strive to be more like your son. So, Father, I ask that as we leave today, that that would carry throughout the rest of this week, that we would be people who love you, God. And that you would just work in our hearts. So we give you this morning, we ask that you go before us. In your name, amen. Have a good Sunday, everyone.